So in other words, the genetics is setting you up. And then if you don't have the environmental factors, the trigger doesn't get pulled. So I think that's the only explanation why we can see autism rising so dramatically because genetic, and there's nobody running around today that wasn't exactly the same 50 years ago. But 50 years ago, we didn't have all the environmental factors. Nope. I don't know if I told you this, but I've, I've said many times, I look at the genetics of autistic children and I look at my genome and I'm like, if I'd be a 10-year-old boy, that's where I'd be. Want to truly be the best parent you can be and help your child thrive after their autism diagnosis? This podcast is for all in parents like you who know more is possible for your child. With each episode, we reveal a secret that empowers you to be the parent your child needs now, saving you time, energy, and money, and helping you focus on what truly matters most, your child. I'm Cass. And I'm Len. Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. It's Len, and this week, uh, we are really fortunate to have Bob Miller back on the show. He was our guest in episode 109 a few months ago, and that one was called Genes Are Clues, Not Destiny. And it was a phenomenal episode. Go back and watch that one before consuming this one, because it's going to build off of that earlier episode. But he's back with some really exciting new insights And overall, the topic is still about genes and how better understanding your genetic makeup can really help a parent make better decisions for their own health and for their child's health. And Bob is truly an expert. Let me just give you a little bit of background on him. He's a traditional naturopath, and he specializes in the field of genetic-specific nutrition. And in 1993, he opened the Tree of Life practice and he's been serving as a traditional naturopath for over 27 years. He created an online certification course on genetic nutrition that has empowered over 900 health professionals, and he co-founded Functional Genomic Analysis. It's an online software program that organizes and analyzes genetic SNPs for functional health professionals across the world. So this is, like the first episode, going to be a little bit more of a presentation Uh, than a discussion because of the nature of the material involved. But trust me, it'll be worth your time to better understand this opportunity, again, to improve overall wellness for you, your family, and especially for your loved one on the autism spectrum. So with that, I'd like to welcome Bob. And the secret, by the way, for this episode is that genetics load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. So welcome, Bob. Well, it's, uh, it's good to be back and had so much fun the last time. And uh, looking forward to this one as well. Uh, I know most people listen to this uh, on audio, so let's make note that we're going to give you the the PDFs if someone would like to follow along, because we're going to be looking at a lot of charts and graphs, and we're going to be looking at things, and it'll be quite a bit more helpful if you if you look at that. Now, as you mentioned, uh, our first show uh, was all about looking at the pathways that we can make neuroinflammation, and I think more and more evidence is showing that that's what's happening: neuroinflammation is the the root cause. And there's just so many environmental factors that we weren't exposed to. You know, I was born in 1954, and when I was born in 1954, uh, there was no cell phones. There was no Wi-Fi. There was no high fructose corn syrup. There wasn't cell phones. We didn't genetically modify our foods. We didn't give the animals growth hormones. We didn't have near the amount of plastics. Our environment has changed drastically. I mean, from a human history standpoint, the changes we've experienced in the last 50 to 60 years are probably the most dramatic we've ever had in the history of man as to what we're exposed to. And I'm afraid all of these things are cumulatively having an impact on us and then impacting those who have any genetic weakness the most. And some of these genetic weaknesses, if you were born 75 years ago, probably would have made you, you know, a little rumbunctious, as we say sometimes, or, or high-strung but not some of the things that we're seeing today. So with that backdrop, let me do a screen share here for you. And here's our title, Research on Autism and Heme Oxygenase Weakness. Now, most, I know most people are probably saying, I've never heard of heme oxygenase. But we're going to give you uh, some uh, information today as to why that uh, might be very important. And of course, we always mention this is uh, research information. 
for educational, informational. We're not designed to diagnose or treat anything. So this is just uh, educational information. Now, this is a slide we used before, but we just said that uh, with autism, there does seem to be growing evidence that there's dysregulated neuroinflammation. Now, if you go back and watch my previous one, we spent the whole episode going through this, uh, going through this map. I'm going to give the cliff notes on this right now. So if you recall, we talked about there's an enzyme called tumor necrosis factor. And I like to say it's our friend unless it isn't. And what I mean by that, tumor necrosis factor is there to create inflammation to kill pathogens. And if we didn't have that, we'd likely die of infections. Then tumor necrosis factor stimulates another very inflammatory enzyme called NF-kappa B. Then that stimulates another enzyme called NADPH oxidase. That stimulates interleukin-6. Now I'm going to pause here because we talked last time about there's an enzyme called SIRT1. The body is so amazing, Leonard. It really is. That SIRT1 senses when NF-kappa B or NOx is out of control and calms it down a little bit. You'll notice over to the right here, for those of you who are seeing the video or the slides, there's something called HO1, and that's going to be our topic today. We're going to be primarily focusing on this heme oxygenase because you'll see that it calms everything down. But I'm going to get to that a little bit later. I want to finish the pathway of inflammation. Then that NOx enzyme makes mast cells. And you can have genetics on what are called the kit genes that'll make more. Then that will stimulate histamine. And you can have genetic issues that you can actually create more histamine. Or you can have difficulty degrading histamine. Then that stimulates an enzyme called INOS, inducible nitric oxide synthase. Then that can make more inflammation. And it can stimulate and activate platelets that make something called RANTES. Now, to calm all this down, we have the good fats, the omega-3s. And they make something called protectins and resolvins that calm down the platelets. Now, I'm going to jump back to the tumor necrosis factor because you can have genetic issues that this guy's overactive, or you can be exposed to mycotoxins. I'm becoming more convinced, Len, that mycotoxins are getting more prevalent and stronger. We can have viruses, we can have Lyme disease, we can have clostridia. Any of those things will stimulate TNFA. And just as a clinical observation in our clinic, we find that when people have, for example, Lyme, and they're exposed to mycotoxins, these are the sickest of the sick. They're really struggling, and then they might have some genetic issues that they over-respond. Our latest research, and this might be a future show if you'd like to do it, and that is that the TNFA stimulates an enzyme called PLA2. We spoke of it that a little bit, that pulls out arachidonic acid that again makes inflammation. Now, we've uh, upgraded our research on arachidonic acid substantially. And we are, uh, we're now looking at ways that this creates inflammation. And that might make a future show, but uh, we don't have time for that uh, today because we're going to be talking about heme oxygenase. Those, this RANTES then will stimulate more mast cells, more histamine, and then that will stimulate something called the uh, renin-angiotensin system to again make more mast cells and more histamine, and you're on a little bit of a merry-go-round. Now, quite frankly, that is a, um, about a six-hour lecture in four minutes. <laughs> we just wanted to give the backdrop in case anyone didn't watch the previous show. So I would right. encourage you to go back where we go through this step by step. But, but, but it really it really is such an interplay, such a complex, fascinating, incredibly humbling interplay. And, you know, when you get to, when we were talking about what stimulates or, or overstimulates to start the process, those things, those toxins or those stressors, whatever name you want to give them, have always been around. But I think what you were alluding to at the outset the extent to which our bodies are being subject to viruses and other toxins that excite, overly stimulate, it's not as if now the environment's a little bit more higher than it used to be. It really is orders of magnitude exponentially a much more different 
uh, setup today, which is why the balance of this system, the beauty of how it all keeps itself regulated, it just can't keep up with what's happening now. Is that correct? Very well said. I was just going to say you, you just summarized that uh, beautifully. Very good job there, Lynn. And what happens is, for example, that TNFA and that NFKB, that's our immune system to protect us. And when that's overactive, that's when we get autoimmune diseases. And we are seeing autoimmune diseases among children going up dramatically because environmental factors on their own are stimulating. Then, for example, if you have a genetic mutation that TNFA is overactive or NFKB is overactive or CERT1 is underactive or the, the mast cells are trigger happy or you don't clear histamine, this is where you really then start compounding the problem. That's why, you know, two people can live in a moldy house. One person is sick as can be. And unfortunately, the other says, well, you just be, must be imagining things because I don't feel anything here. Uh, or EMF. You know, one person can be very sensitive to EMF. And the other person says, well, you're crazy. That, that can't do anything. I don't feel anything. Well, they're both being exposed to the same environmental toxins. But the one person may have overreaction to it or a lowered ability to clear it. And that's what it really comes down to. If you, if you want the, the cliff notes on this, environmental toxins stimulate everybody the same way, but some people overreact or have limited ability to knock down the inflammation. Got it. So now I'm just going to very, very quickly go through these slides because I talked about TNFA. And here you see at the bottom, autistic children show increased blood TNFA concentrations associated with symptom severity. Peer-reviewed study, not just somebody's opinion. This goes all the way back to 2017. Then aberrant NF-kappa-B expression in autism spectrum conditions, a mechanism for inflammation. They're saying that, uh, that the immune response induces the expression of inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, establishing a feedback mechanism that can produce chronic or excess inflammation. Then we spoke about the CERT-1. Remember, CERT-1 holds things back, holds back the tumor necrosis factor. And it says CERT-1 genes expression was downregulated in autism spectrum disorder patients. So you can see here now, here's a case where the CERT-1, which is the breaks, is struggling. So that's why I think we're not going to find one genetic pattern. There could probably be 30 to 50 different patterns, but there's a common denominator that being that there's an environmental factor and either some things over respond to it or the brakes, so to speak, the coma down is weak. I just continually see that uh, pattern. And if these studies were done, let's say they changed the, well, I'm, I'm guessing maybe they did this, but the gist of these studies is that not only do, um, is there absolute harm that is caused by some of these environmental factors, but it, these studies are concluding that children on the autism spectrum have are harmed or have more susceptibility to harm than a control let's let's say a, a neurotypical child is that is that the right way of looking at this that would be the way i'd interpret it yes you just yeah. hit the nail on the head there buddy so this is one of my favorite subjects nadph oxidase uh, i came out with the a coin the phrase back in 2019 the nadph steel. And what I mean by that, there's an important molecule called NADPH. And throughout the body, it's used for good things. It helps recycle your glutathione. It helps clear histamine. It's involved in energy production. Uh, and we're going to show later how it's involved in the heme oxygenase. But when the NOx enzyme sees danger, it says, we've got a problem here. We've got to kill somebody. NADPH helped me make free radicals to kill. Now, is that a good thing, Len? Of course, if we have a pathogen to kill. But it's not a good thing if it's upregulated by environmental factors. That's when the body's attacking itself. That's when we're getting those excess mast cells. Yes. And this is an area that I continue to believe may be the key point that this NOx enzyme is being upregulated by environmental factors. All right, now here's this study saying activation of the TLR4 T cells by lipopolysaccharides, and you find that in mold and lime, leads to enhanced generation of NOx2, that's what I just talked about, reactive oxygen species, via the, the uh, kappa light chain enhancer 
of the NFK, NF-kappa-B pathway. So you see how these two dance together. Now, that increase is what are called mast cells. And this study is showing that there does seem to be uh, some activation of mast cells in the children with, uh, with autism. Dr. Thea Hardy's does a lot of study on that. Then those mast cells create histamine. And here we go, back in 2017, in a psychiatry uh, journal, altered expression of histamine signaling genes in autism spectrum disorder. Bob Miller clinically observing only. Uh, they're talking about the histamine receptor sites. And I've been finding that um, in some of the receptor sites um, where the histamine goes in to do good things, there's more mutations in those receptor sites in the autistic spectrum. Then um, we talked about how this uh, creates the Rantes that can create something called SCD40L. And here's a paper from 2006 from the University of Pennsylvania, signs of abnormal, abnormal blood vessel function and damaging levels of oxidative stress compared to healthy children. They had higher urinary levels of thromboxane. And I think I may have showed that very briefly, and we can go back to that again. But that is what creates these activated platelets and the abnormal blood vessel function. And then this creates something called VEGF. Again, just this was just in 2021. It says, strengthening clinical evidence of neurotrophic, neurotrophic factor aberrations in children with autism spectrum disorder coming from this uh, higher levels of the VEGF. Because in the... Uh, the VEGF in children with autism spectrum disorder was significantly higher than that of healthy controls. And when you look at that chart that I've created, it just shows how one thing after another creates that. And then it creates the, uh, the Rantes, and then says uh, compared to the typical developing children, Rantes was higher in the, uh, in the autism spectrum. And here's where it gets tricky because somebody tends to think, okay, it's Rantes, so if I just take care of that, it may help. And then if you do a study, you'll find, well, it may be helped in a small percentage. So as you can see here, and just in my opinion, any one of these could be causing it. And we have to treat each person individually, not here's the, here's the protocol for autism. And I think we've kind of looked at that. We, we try to identify something and then the treatment. And that may work if you've got a bacteria and you've got an antibiotic that kills it. But this is, is what I call the 3D chess game played underwater, Lynn. Multiple factors. And I don't think, you know, what will work beautifully for one person may do nothing for the next. And then we throw it out as being ineffective. Interleukin-6, I know I went through it very quickly, but we talked about how the NOx stimulates the interleukin-6. Here's a study. Interleukin-6 is increased in the brains of autistic brain and altered neural cell adhesion. Bottom line, increased IL-6 expression may be partially responsible for the pathology of autism. Now, we've, uh, we've talked about all this inflammation, and I just flew through that. And again, if somebody wants the, the slower version, go ahead. But I know some people aren't going to go back. And I just wanted to set the stage of how multiple environmental and genetic things cause inflammation. So I am very excited about this next subject, and that is heme oxygenase. So heme oxygenase is an enzyme that I've had in my software for years, and uh, I thought, well, yeah, that, that might be something that's useful because heme oxygenase breaks down what's called heme. When, when the heme is old and aged, it pulls out the iron, it puts it into ferritin, but it creates something called biliverdin and bilirubin. Now, you know, most of will say, well, isn't that sometimes what happens to a child when it's too high and they put them under a light? And isn't that what happens if somebody's got liver or kidney problems, that bilirubin goes too high? And until I started to research this, that's the kind of uh, thought process I had. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, and I was amazed as I went through this, that the research is there. I mean, this isn't something we're making up. Bilirubin, as you can see here, it calms down tumor necrosis factor alpha, it calms down NF-kappa-B, it calms down NOx, and it calms down interleukin-6. And I don't have it on this chart, but it also calms down that INOS enzyme that gets too activated, that 
impairs your circulation and creates the activated platelets. All from bilirubin. That's pretty astonishing. So what we started looking at is, well, what can affect that? So there's an enzyme called HO1 and HO2. The difference is this one kicks in when there's free radicals. This one's working most of the time. And interestingly, very complex, and we'll go through this in detail, but I'm going to give the big picture. There's an enzyme called NRF2, NRF2, nuclear transaction factor, and something called HEAP1. So let's do a little analogy here, Len. Think of a lot of people have a sprinkler in their ceiling, and there's a valve there that is tightly shut that doesn't let the water run out of your house. I mean, you'd have a real problem if your sprinkler system would start giving off water on a random basis, right? Sure. So you'll want it just to happen when there's a fire. So keep one suppresses NERF2, and it keeps it suppressed unless there's a fire, in this case, inflammation. When it senses inflammation, the keep one releases the NERF2. That stimulates the hemoxygenases to make these antioxidants. Now, what's interesting, again, just clinically observing, no double-blind studies on this one, but the people I'm seeing who are struggling the most, both mother and father gave them a genetic mutation that keep one is stronger. So it's like a sprinkler. When the fire starts, the sprinkler doesn't go off. One of the most common things I'm, we're consistently observing and perhaps someday we could do some research on this that's really more than just a clinical observation. But I continually see this upregulation of KEEP1 in not only autism, but in mold sensitivity to those with chronic Lyme, uh, people who are long-haul COVID, seem to have this double mutation on the KEEP1. So that's going to not allow this hemoxygenase to do its magic of calming all of this down. So if you've got tumor necrosis factor genetically overactive, or even if you don't, and you're living in a moldy house, and you've got Lyme disease, or you might have a genetic issue that you overabsorb iron, this inflammation pathway that we described is running, and you don't have the ability to hold it back. Now, we're going to get into this in more detail. It needs heme to do that. And there's a whole process called the heme cycle where this is made. You can have genetic mutations in any of these that will impede it. And what it needs is succinyl COA, and that comes from the Krebs cycle where we make energy. So if you're not doing well and you've got some illness, you may not be making enough of this. Dietary-wise, you may not have enough glycine. Now, here's a thing I'm, I'm not going to take a stand on. I'm just going to say that there's arguments on both sides. Stephanie Seneff, who, of course, you know, from uh, MIT is well known for saying she believes glyphosate impacts glycine. Yes. Other scientists say we don't think that's happening. So I'm not going to take a stand on it. I'm just going to say that that's debated in the scientific community. But if it would be, you're not giving the body the nutrients it needs to go through these eight steps. And I don't have them drawn in here, but lead will impair some of these. Now, what happens, Len, is that if this process is not working properly, what is called porphyrins in here will block what's called the GABA receptor sites. Now, GABA is the don't worry, relax, be happy. And if they get blocked, you're not very happy. One of the signs and symptoms of this is when people get hangry, where they're frustrated, angry, they got to have food, they eat food, and all of a sudden they feel better because they push this along. Mm. There's also cofactors. We don't have them written in here, but here, for example, you need something called uh, FAD, which comes from uh, riboflavin. Some of these are zinc-dependent. Some of these are uh, alpha-lipoic acid-dependent. Any deficiencies there could cause this problem. But I believe exposure to lead, possibly glyphosate, other things that could make the mitochondria not make enough of this, we're not getting enough heme. Right. Or if somebody has has been diagnosed with mitochondrial issues, right, there's already evidence that just the energy system of, that, of the body isn't operating 
um, as well as it could. Absolutely. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. And we've only been looking at this now for a couple of months. There's an enzyme called POR that delivers NADPH to the hemoxygenase enzyme. You can have mutations on this where it doesn't do a good a job. There's an enzyme called G6PD in ME1 that give that POR enzyme that NADPH, particularly in people of Southern Italian, African American, Native American, South Americans, very common to have G6PD deficiency. Just as it's very common in the English and the Irish and the Ashkenazi Jewish to have the overabsorption of the iron. So if you've got some genetic mutations here, you're not going to be giving the POR enzyme the NADPH has needs to make the hemoxygenase work. So think about all the things that can go wrong here. Oh, and by the way, these are controlled by NERF2 and KEEP1. And then also the FAD is dependent upon riboflavin. You can have either riboflavin deficiency because you're, you don't get enough from your diet, or you can have genetic mutations in your riboflavin transport. So there's a whole lot of things that can go wrong here, Lynn. You can be exposed to glyphosate, mitochondrial issues, mutations up here, weakness in the enzymes themselves, not enough NADPH, not enough riboflavin. There's a lot that can go wrong here, and you need this to calm this down. Now, that's the view from 10,000 feet. Let's go into a little detail. Oh, one thing I forgot. The mold citrinin inhibits interleukin-10 which strengthens hemoxygenase and NERF2. So bottom line is the bilirubin from the HO1 reduces tumor necrosis factor, NF-kappa-B, NADPH oxidase, interleukin-6, and INOS. That's a big deal. So if you've got environmental factors stimulating genetic factors and make it overactive, weakness in CERT1 or anything over here, you've got like a runaway car where you don't have the brakes to put on. And that seems to be what we're observing. Now here again, I talked a little bit more about the, uh, the heme cycle. KEEP1 and NERF2 stimulates heme oxygenase 1, ME1G6PD deliver the NADPH to the POR enzyme to hand it over to heme oxygenase 1 and 2 to do their job. Now, this is interesting. This is now new information. Keep one and NERF2 working and low hemoxygenase serum levels in children with autism. This blew me away. And this was published all the way back in 2020. And then it's saying the conclusion, oxidative stress is higher in children with autism spectrum disorder and that hemoxygenase levels are insufficient to achieve oxidative balance. That might be the key phrase, so that's why I'm going to repeat it again. Oxidative stress is higher in children with autism, and hemoxygenase levels are insufficient to achieve oxidative balance. And what we mean by that is something genetically or environmentally is causing this oxidative stress, and then we don't have the ability to tamp it down. And uh, this is something we've just started investigating, and I'm kind of blown away by how the people who are just not just autism, but chronic Lyme, long-haul COVID, exposure to mold, most of them have something that's reducing their ability to make hemoxidase. Uh, I'm rather intrigued by this. Now, here's a map for those of you who are looking at the slides. And again, mentioned, I believe in your, uh, in your links, you're going to have links to the PDFs. There you'll see at the top, you have heme. HO1 means it's inducible. So if you get exposed to anything that would cause oxidative stress, it says, ooh, we got a problem here. we got to turn on the antioxidants. So you'll see it makes carbon monoxide, biliverdin that turns into bilirubin, and then puts your iron into ferritin. So I believe one of the things that happens is that if this is not working, people have low ferritin. And some well-meaning practitioner says, oh, your ferritin's low, you need to take iron. Right. And in some instances, that's okay, 
but if the root cause of it is that this is not working and the iron is just flying off as a free radical, you can actually be throwing fuel on the fire. Now, that's if that's occurring. I mean, there are times that iron is needed. I'm not saying never take iron, but there can be some instances where that happens. All right, and you'll see here NADPH is needed for this to work. So you could have perfect heme oxygenase enzymes. You could have perfect NADPH, or you could have perfect uh, heme supply. But if you don't have the NADPH, it's not going to work. And remember, I spoke about when the NOx enzyme is upregulated, the NADPH steel takes away this NADPH. So I'm leaning towards electron deficiency as being a big problem, not only in autism, but as many of the conditions we're seeing today, because we need NADPH to recycle glutathione. We need it to, uh, to also clear histamine. It's used in many processes throughout the body. The more we research, the more we see our good friend NADPH. And if we're not making enough, or we're using it to make free radicals, we're, we're compromised. Now, let's talk about uh, bilirubin. Um, and again, a lot of people think bilirubin, well, that's too high. That's when you turn yellow. That's when you don't do well. Okay. Absolutely true. So that bilirubin, it comes down, it comes from the breakdown of red blood cells and the liver helps excrete it. And we can have it too high. That's when people, you know, sometimes turn yellow and it can be a, be a problem. Now, once it's in the liver, bilirubin becomes conjugated and the, and the body can excrete it. Unconjugated is toxic. So, but what we're going to talk about is, you know, when it's too high, when the liver is not working properly, it may not be able to make bilirubin water soluble. And this can be caused by viruses, alcoholic liver disease, medicine overdoses, autoimmunity. All of those things can cause it to be too high. This is where you get the yelling of the skin, yelling of the whites of the eyes, dark colors urine itchy skin, pale stools, nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, bloating, weight loss, headaches, confusion, fatigue, drowsiness. This is a real problem if bilirubin is too high. But hang on to your hat here, Lynn. I couldn't believe when I saw these studies. Here they're talking about bilirubin and glutathione have complementary antioxidant and cytoprotective roles. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, is that the first time you've heard that? Well, I, I, it is the first time I've heard it, and I, but I'm very familiar with the fact that glutathione plays that role, right? Um, you know, so so that's why, especially early on when we were you know, kind of digesting a lot of this information, it was like, hey, what can we do to help promote glutathione um, and make it perform its function more? Um, you know, for our, for our son, so we were very focused on glutathione. Billy Rubin never came up. And of course, it does pop up as, you know, a baseline blood lab. You know, you'll see bilirubin and it's usually always in a normal range. I think one time mine popped up a little bit high, mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise it's one of those labs that you, you get when you do the standard labs and you usually just ignore it because it's a normal range. Sure. But look at this bottom line here. The water-soluble glutathione protects water-soluble proteins, whereas the lipophilic bilirubin protects lipids from oxidation. Wow, that's a big deal. Bilirubin scavenges superoxide. That's the nasty free radical that causes all kinds of damage. It inhibits NADPH oxidase. That really caught my eye. Again, peer-reviewed study, 2018. Yep. Not all that new, but you know, a lot of these studies are done. They get published and, and nobody ties all the knots together. But when I saw that this inhibits NADPH oxidase, that really caught my attention because that's the NADPH steel. There's a little bit more, but it's the same thing. Same, but this is another study. Bilirubin inhibits the activation process of the superoxide producing NADPH oxidase. And they're talking about uh, it can protect the cells from a 10,000-fold excess of hydrogen peroxide. And again, the hydrogen peroxide is helpful. It kills pathogens, but if it's too high, it causes inflammation. Mm -hmm. This one, 
it inhibits the secretion of tumor necrosis factor and IL-6 in lipopolysaccharide prime macrophages, indicating the inhibition of NF-kappa B. Like, whoa, it significantly inhibited the release of tumor necrosis factor, resulting in an increased survival rate when they tried it on mice with lipopolysaccharides-induced sepsis. So they're saying bilirubin could therefore be considered an endogenous regulatory molecule modulating inflammation. And, and in simple terms, it's a great firefighter, right? It's, it's, it's having a calming effect. Absolutely. And then it has a significant reduction of the INOS gene expression. That's the inducible nitric oxide synthase. And again, if you either watch the previous or just those quick cliff notes I gave you in the beginning, INOS activates platelets that makes the VEGF, and it also inhibits your ENOS, which is circulation. So a lot of times people have cold hands and feet, sometimes to the point of what's called Renaud's disease, where the feet and hands are cold because the INOS is pushing down the ENOS. So there again, here's how it works, it's magic. The, um, the heme, by heme oxygenase one or two, and NADPH makes that biliverdin and the bilirubin. So now again, I want to just review this one more time. The POR donates NADPH to hemoxygenase so it can create them. There are, and we have this in our software, there are evidence-based pathological mutations on the POR that it doesn't do its job quite as well. We need riboflavin. There are genetic mutations here that you won't make enough FAD. You can have genetic mutations in G6PD that you don't make enough POR. You can have genetic mutations in ME1. You can have weakness on NERF2, or you can have overactive KEEP1. So as you can see there, Len, there's a lot that can happen. Just the homozygous on KEEP1 could do it. Mutations here could do it. Mutations here could do it. Mutation here could do it. Or if everything's working here and Knox is doing that NADPH steal, even if these guys are doing okay, the NADPH is being used elsewhere. There's a heck of a lot that can go wrong here. Yeah, I'm thinking the emoji with the head exploding, which is why <laughs> I think you created um, the software to be able to do this type of analysis. I, I think you have so much experience, but even your brain to be able to consider all these factors, it, it, it's kind of just, it, you have to be able to rely on more um, uh, more software, more advanced technology to really kind of understand all those relationships and then to be able to say, okay, well, what, what if anything, can you do to improve the situation? Right. And that's what we're doing with the, with the software. We're, we're putting logic in because unless you live and breathe this all day, you yeah. don't know all those connections. So what we do in the software is we have thousands of logic statements that, for example, I'll, let me go back to this slide here. Um, so there are logic statements that uh, if this guy is upregulated, when you go look here, it's, it sends up a message. Doesn't matter what's happening here, you got a problem back here. If you go right here, it'll tell you, well, this guy might be okay, but you need to look at your riboflavin because you're not maybe having the cofactor. And uh, that's a work in progress, but that's what we're trying to do with our software. Mm -hmm. So when the health professional looks at this, because, uh, you know, most health professionals don't do this full time like I do. They need that that guidance to connect those um, those dots. So it's a work in progress, but that's what we're doing. We're connecting the dots so that um, this 3D chess game makes some mistakes. I mean, we can't just look at like a lot of people look at MTHFR. Oh, my gosh, I've got MTHFR. Well, almost 48% of the population does. So we can't just look at that one thing and say, oh, you need methylfolate. Much more complex. All right, here's a little information on the POR gene. Again, for those of you who uh, are just listening, I'm showing a slide that uh, gives a lot of data, and I'm not going to read this. You know, if somebody wants to look at the uh, slides and read up on POR, uh, that's why I put it in here. But it's basically that... Uh, this enzyme feeds all of your cytochrome P450s, which is your phase one detox. Now, picture's worth a thousand words. Here you can see the POR gives 
um, instructions or uh, information to the CYPs that are part of your drug metabolism. Since we're talking about autism, I didn't bring this up, but this POR enzyme is involved in almost every one of your steroid metabolisms, how you make your testosterone, how you make your estrogens. It helps clear xenobotics, the hemoxygenase as we spoke about. So it's a pretty important guide. Here you can see it's involved with bone formation, steroid metabolism as we talked about, drug metabolism, detoxification, the HO1 and HO2 that we just spoke about, and even cholesterol metabolism, all controlled by POR. Now, I wanted to put this slide in because this shows the magical NADPH. It's used by the thriodoxin enzyme to reduce reactive oxygen species. It's used by glutathione reductase, catalase, to decrease inflammation. It helps an enzyme called DHFR use folate metabolism. And as we know, there is some concern about folate in the brain in the autistic children. The POR enzyme that we just spoke about. However, here's NOx. And this is our friend, unless it's not, because it will create a lot of reactive oxygen species to kill pathogens. I've said this a couple of times, so it's worth repeating. Good thing? Yes. Unless it's excessive and being driven by environmental factors and just creating you know, it's, it's like a shooting an enemy that's not there. You want this guy to shoot the enemy, but you don't want to be shooting bullets at the person. And I'm afraid that's what's happening. Alan. There's just so many things overstimulating this, um, this Dox enzyme. All right, here again is the, um, the making the heme. And this is a repeat, but I thought it'd be a good idea just to give the cliff notes and then go over in detail. Sosinol COA comes from the Krebs cycle. Any conditions impeding the energy production may lower this. Dietary deficiencies or possibly glyphosate may impede the glycine. And then each one of these, ALAS, ALAD, HMBS, UROS, UROD, CPOX, PPOX, FETCH, we've uh, identified uh, in, uh, in each of these where there's pathological mutations where it gets stuck. Okay. So... Porphyrins go through here one to another. And as we said earlier, if these get disrupted, these porphyrins can block the GABA receptor sites. GABA is your don't worry, relax, be happy. I know early on, uh, one of the tests, and this goes back over a dozen years ago, but testing urine to determine the level of porphyrins was at the time a test, I think it's still clearly used. Is, is that related to this, that if you have excess amount of porphyrins, they're building up, and that's a sign that you have something that's blocked in this cycle? Absolutely, and it's a valuable test. The only problem is it can be cyclical. Uh, you can take it one time of the day, and it's okay. You take it another time of the day, and it's not. So, um, and, and I believe one of the, the best ways to, to see this is to say to people, do you get hangry? We talked about that earlier, that if you're very agitated, fearful, worried, it's like, I got to have some food, and then you feel better after the food. That's not always the case, but many times you're feeding this. Now, clinical observation only. Right, but, but, but with that clinical observation, with the patients that you've seen, because um, food challenges with children on the spectrum, picky eating, tantrums, all, a lot of energy around food. So from your, again, clinical observations with the kids who are, who are let's say, have more issues with respect to food, is, is this a recurring, that, that you see this more often than not in those types of children? Oh, absolutely. And, and many times they'll crave sugars because they're making this, you know, it pushes us along. Now, one of the things when, if people do not have a dairy problem, I've observed, and again, this is just Bob Miller observing, no peer-reviewed study, that's, so let's be clear. They love ice cream. Ice cream is their comfort food because it's going to give a push of sugar and it's going to give some glycine. And I've had some parents, and again, this is not for everybody, this is only if you have this disruption here, but giving a child a tablespoon or two of ice cream every couple of hours in some instances helps. Now, that doesn't mean every autistic child is going to be helped by that. 
because if you have a dairy problem, it's going to make things worse. Right. Um, if this is not the issue, they'll probably like the ice cream, but it won't help. Mm-hmm. But when you have serious mutations here, in some instances, the ice cream or sometimes honey will do wonders to balance this guy back up. Uh, but then lead, you know, we're being exposed to lead. And um, all of that limits your amount of, of heat. So that's uh, that's the end of the presentation. Maybe you might want to have a couple questions. Just a little commercial here. If you are a health professional watching this, you know, you're either, uh, you know, a licensed practitioner or a certified nutritionist or something along that line. We do have a genetic test called functional genomic analysis. We have the saliva test that measures 260,000 SNPs. And then you can make uh, custom products. All you'd have to do is go to our website. And if you're a health professional, health professionals only, please don't, uh, if you're not a health professional, don't go there because uh, we won't approve your account. You can start using this and do a, a free trial. Um, if someone wants to talk to us um, in our clinic for their about their child, here's our contact number, 717-733-2003, health.com And if you're a health professional, uh, functionalgenomicanalysis.com is uh, where you can sign up for a free trial and see if this is for you. And Yvonne Lucchese and, uh, and Chrissy are your sales and technical support. 717-466-5700. So um, I hope, uh, Len, you found this interesting because I think we brought together another piece to this. I mean, in the first part, we talked about all the genetic and environmental things that will light the fire, so to speak. Today, we were looking at the fire extinguisher, being that uh, heme oxygenase. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking at that uh, quite a bit more. Uh, we're just in the... Uh, the early stages of this. And if somebody wants to learn more, on uh, September 16th, I'm doing a uh, probably an hour or so with Dr. Jill Carnahan on heme oxygenase, not from a, not from a uh, autism standpoint, but from other standpoints. So if you just go on YouTube, Dr. Jill Carnahan, that'll be sometime available at the end of uh, September 2022. So, uh, and we'll be talking more about uh, a little bit more of the technical of, of hemoxidase. We tailored this one for the autism uh, audience. So bottom line is, this is a 3D chess game played underwater. Multiple environmental factors are making the oxidative stress. Sometimes we have genetic factors that cause the body to overreact to them. And then many times between CERT1, glutathione, catalase, and now hemoxygenase, we're not able to hold back that oxidative stress. And there's probably hundreds of ways that this could all go down. So that's why when somebody says, here's the magic bullet for autism, likely not. (laughs) And and, and of course, I'm sitting here, one, appreciating all this, because I I love taking in more of this information. I'm figuring out how this applies to myself and my son, my daughter, my wife. You know, we're going to be connecting with you separately on that. But... I, I'm 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 trying to catch myself trying to simplify it because I know this kind of defies simplification. But if I can even make an attempt, right? Because we're talking with this whole episode, it's about how um genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. So if someone were to say, Well, how do genes really like come into play? Like what what what's the root cause? Like if I have messed up genes, there's nothing I can do. But I think we can we can start by saying that. Yes, there may be some genetic susceptibilities or some genes that are not operating optimally. So there could be issues of that nature, but then there could also be issues where those regulating enzymes, those, those other factors that should that in a t- typical situation would compensate for, let's say, a, a double mutation on a gene, that those either aren't there or those are being adversely impacted. So you kind of have less than optimal genes, perhaps you have the firefighters or the regulators that aren't operating as well as they could. Is there any other high level like factor that we didn't talk about that you would add to those two? Well, yeah. And maybe that is compensation. I'm glad you said that. People say, well, if your genes aren't optimal, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's that's not quite true. So say, for example, you overabsorb iron. Well, there are things like alpha lipoic acid and clove that will help you absorb a little bit less. And then lifestyle, 
don't take any iron and don't cook with iron skillets. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if the TNFA is upregulated, uh, there are things like black cumin seed oil that will calm that down. If you have problems with the heme oxygenase, something as simple as hops can help that along. If that heme oxygenate or that heme cycle is not working, glycine and some amino acids that are the precursors to the succinyl COA, I formulated a product called uh, Krebs Heme Assist that says, okay, let's give a little push to that succinyl COA. Let's give you some glycine. Let's give you some of those cofactors for the genes. Um, for example, for myself, my um, my heme cycle is a disaster. So <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I have to take uh, three times a day, I take glycine and some of these amino acids to give myself a little push. If the, um, if for example, the, the CERT1 is not doing its job, resveratrol and pterostilbene can be very helpful. And avoiding like the plague, high fructose corn syrup because high fructose corn syrup inhibits CERT1. You know, if you've got the um, the, the histamine upregulated, uh, there's things like dynamine oxidase that comes from a kidney's um, kidney, or the uh, a pig's kidney that actually provides that DAO for you to degrade the histamine. If the INOS is upregulated, uh, something called paractin from astragalus and lysine will help slow that down. So we can't change your genetic pattern. Now, one of my favorite sayings is we have good news and bad news. The good news is we can compensate. The bad news is we can compensate. <laughs> <laughs> so, and particularly if you don't recycle your glutathione, uh, lycopene and parsley help that along. If you're not making enough of that uh, fad, uh, for example, I personally have a, a pathological mutation on my uh, transport of riboflavin. So I take massive amounts of riboflavin to compensate that I don't transport it. So I just put more of that into my body. So mm-hmm. that's what we can do to to compensate. So we don't have to sit back and say, you know, I'm in trouble because I have these mutations. There are ways to compensate, but that's the key word, compensate. You know, I've had people say, so I'll take these herbs for a while and then my genes will be working at 100%. It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment you were conceived, that pattern was made. When that sperm and egg went together, boom, there's you. After you pass from this earth, if somebody would measure your DNA, it'd be exactly the same as day of conception. So we can't change the hand we're dealt, but we can compensate. And for example, if mold is a problem, you want to be darn sure you're not exposed to any mold. You know, make sure you got air purifiers. Make sure if there's any water that comes in, you get that cleaned up. And you just have to then compensate in that way. So your compensation could be making sure you don't live in mold. Don't sit next to your router all day. <laughs> right. Don't eat uh, foods filled with uh, with high fructose corn syrup. And, and those and those are all the ways we, we help parents to help show them where there may be exposures that they can absolutely do something about if if you're aware of it and if you know in many cases uh especially if you can measure it then you're you're more motivated to do something about it uh but i love what you're saying in terms of helping you know it's not about identifying genetic issues and okay then doing a few things and then it goes away as you said it's all about kind of just that gentle giving the body and nudging it in the direction so it can just work its magic that it's designed to do and maybe some things you do need to take perpetually, uh, but uh, but that's where this whole function, this whole uh, genetic nutrition field is such a, a, a different one. A lot of people aren't aware of it, and that's really what it's about. Right, it's using the power of food and and giving your body what it needs for these incredibly uh, impressive, sophisticated systems to work as they've been designed to work. Sure, you know a good example is there's a lot of people talk about the wonderful benefits of fermented foods mm. as to how they help the gut. Absolutely true, unless you have a histamine problem. Then you're throwing fuel on the fire when you eat all these histamine foods. This might be a future discussion, but I'm very intrigued by our ability to use fats, by the fatty acid desaturases. So, you know, people talk about the, uh, the ketogenic diet. Fantastic for some people. If you don't break down your fats, 
or you have problems with that um, that heme cycle that we showed, that ketogenic diet is the worst thing you could ever do. Interesting. These people need carbohydrates. They need food going in on a regular basis. Intermittent fasting, incredible. It gives the body its ability to reduce mTOR, speed up autophagy. But if you've got a heme cycle problem, it's a disaster. It doesn't work. So that's why I keep saying when somebody says everyone should, get very worried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, it's, a, it's a very vile term. You know, when you hear the should, it, 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 it's always bad news and, and, yeah. just, and run the other way. Yeah. So for some people, ketogenic diet, a miracle. Yeah. Other person, horrible. Fermented foods, incredible. Help my gut. Oh my God, I got so inflamed, I couldn't stand it. Mm-hmm. So genetics is not 100%, but it does give you clues. So if somebody looks like they're overproducing histamine, and the enzymes that make the DAO or that clear the histamine are weak, fermented foods in excess are probably not a good idea. So that's how we can use this data to make dietary, lifestyle, and supplemental suggestions. Fantastic. It's, it's, and, it's uh, an incredible, incredible opportunity. It truly is. And it's we're just in the infancy, Glenn. Mm-hmm. We really are. I, every year, I, I say to my staff, I think we're going to look back at the previous year and say, Oh, wasn't that quaint? <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it similar to environmental toxins where, yeah, we're st- we may still be in the infancy, but my guess is what you personally have learned in the last year or two probably dwarfs what you learned in the preceding decade, right? Oh, like absolutely. It's, it's coming fast and furious now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, research is being done all the time. You know, I'm, I'm just totally amazed at the, the miracle of the body. I mean, when you think about it. We eat fats, carbohydrates, proteins, drink water, breathe air, expose to sunlight, and everything gets made. Our hair, our skin, our nails, our our neurotransmitters, our blood. I mean, it's just mind-boggling when you sit back and think about it. And unfortunately, we've done some things, you know, giving our animals growth hormones, all the plastics, you know, possibly overexposure to uh, DMF. So one of my, one of my favorite jokes is... Uh, I say, I'm going to get T-shirts made that say, be really smart, live in a dumb house. (laughs) (laughs) That's hard to do these days. I know. It's very hard. Well, again, this has been a fascinating discussion. Look forward to the next one for sure. But but thank you so much for kind of breaking this down and for uh, for really clearly teeing up this opportunity. And, And it is one that may seem complicated, but really the ultimate actions that may come out of this are pretty simple. And uh, and whenever we um, work with people and the, the mentors that we've had, it's so key to focus on those foundational things first before you get into, you know, other things that might help your child thrive and working on things like speech, et cetera. And, and this information that you're sharing and this approach, this strategy is such a key opportunity within that foundational work, because if you can get this right and, and help to kind of correct and get things working in a much better way, so much of the other downstream things that you may be seeing can be addressed if you really get food right as it relates to your unique genetic makeup. Sure. And just to uh, to summarize here, you said, you know, this sounds complicated, and it is, but on the other hand, maybe it's simple. And that is, let's reduce the inflammation, support your antioxidant capacity, make sure good nutrients get in, and make sure the detox pathways are working. That's really it. I mean, you don't have to understand all of these enzymes and cofactors. And, you know, for people who like to, to know the science behind it, this is cool, but you really don't have to. All you have to know is, let's make sure I'm not exposed to mold. Let's go easy on those things. You know, maybe I need extra riboflavin. Maybe I need to get some glycine in there. Uh, those are the simple things. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to have your PhD in biochemistry to understand this. So. <laughs> Well, fantastic. But we're so appreciative that you have done the work and have dove in and have really dove into this topic so you can explain it and help others see the opportunity. So thanks for what you do. Again, I know my whole family is going to benefit from your guidance and uh, and I know our listeners are going to really benefit from this. So yes, everything will be in the show notes. And uh, if it's anything like the feedback from the first one, uh, people are it's it's a little bit shocking for some people who aren't aware of this, but for the ones who are aware, uh, your presentation, your way of conveying it really does help to deepen 
the understanding and make this much more of a, a practical thing that people can dive into. So thank you again for what you do. My pleasure. It's a lot of fun. And it's so satisfying when I hear from parents, it almost brings tears to your eyes of, oh, my child is doing better. They're speaking. They're not as angry. I mean, that's uh, priceless. Want to discover your top autism parenting blind spot? Take our free quiz today. Go to allinparent.com slash go.